0: 385 million people globally fall ill every year from pesticide poison. 385 million. Most of these victims live in the global south. By 2030, half of chemical pesticides should be replaced with alternatives, with practices like crop rotation and with technologies like precision farming. This vision is not only
1: European, it is global.
2: Pesticides are largely known for their negative effects on people and the environment. These substances are meant to kill pests, but their toxicity also destroys biodiversity and causes poisoning worldwide. Pesticides can be found everywhere. In the air we breathe, the food we eat, and the water we drink. That is why many highly dangerous pesticides are banned in the European Union. Yet, they are still produced and exported to third countries. And some member states have found loopholes to allow the use of hazardous substances in agriculture. In fact, the European Union is one of the world's biggest markets for pesticides, with almost a quarter of all pesticides sold in the EU. It is also a top exporting region. Just in 2018, European companies plan to export 81,000 tons of toxic chemicals banned in their own fields. Today on the Bull Europe podcast, the Pesticide Atlas. How are pesticides used today and how can the EU slash their use to protect people's and the planet's health? Hi, my name is Gail Rago, and I'm your host for this episode of the Bowl Europe podcast. To uncover this complex topic, our guests today are Sarah Wiener and Silke Ballmer. Sarah Wiener is a member of the European Parliament for the Greens, or EFA, group. She is also a beekeeper, chef, entrepreneur, and organic farmer. Her whole life revolves around the quality of food and how it is produced. In the Parliament, Sarah takes part in the Committees on Agriculture and Environment, fighting for sustainable farming, animal welfare and good, healthy food for everyone. As rapporteur for the new regulation on the sustainable use of pesticides, she's currently leading the negotiations in the Parliament. Silke Ballmore is a Senior Policy Advisor, Global Food Policy and Agriculture at Incota Network. She also works as a freelancing independent ecotoxologist with Ecotrack Consulting. As a permaculture practitioner, she is also trained in sustainable agricultural techniques. She is the co-editor of the Pesticide Atlas. She worked extensively in Kenya, Nigeria and South Africa. Thank you, Sarah and Silke, for being with us today.
0: Yes, thank you, Gail. Thank you so much.
2: Silke. We mentioned that the European Union has banned dozens of highly hazardous chemicals that are used in industrial agriculture in the last few years. But although they have been proven fatal for the environment and health, the EU remains the world's biggest pesticide market. Could you tell us a little bit about the main consequences of this?
1: Yeah, so let's first talk about the possible impacts on us as human beings Farmers applying their pesticides are actually at higher risk, as well as communities living close by agricultural fields, especially close to big monocultural fields where aerial spraying is uh, still taking place. An example would be soya plantations in Brazil. And as a result of pesticide use, 385 million people fall ill every year from pesticide poisoning causing about 20,000 deaths. That's that's quite a lot. And chronic diseases are not even counted in here. Alzheimer, infertility, cancer, diabetes, they're all associated to regular pesticide exposure. But consumers are also at risk. Pesticide residues can be found everywhere. In the air we breathe, the food we eat, and the water we drink. And children are particularly at risk, as their mental and physical development can be impacted when exposed to pesticides at critical development stage. So there is definitely a huge human health impact on us, but they also have massive impacts on the environment as they are designed to kill, actually. And uh, they do not stay where they have been applied. They can evaporate into the air, they can get transported to other places, and they can move, for example, into water bodies nearby or into the groundwater. So because of that, they're strongly linked to the decline of insects and birds and biodiversity as a whole. And they can also harm soil fertility, which influences then in turn the crop yields and the food security, which is so important right now. New studies also show that pesticides contribute substantially to microplastic pollution. And scientific evidence also indicates that pesticides contribute significantly to greenhouse gas emissions. So there's a long list of consequences and impacts. And I just mentioned a few here now.
2: That's a very long list indeed. So let's focus now on the EU internal market. Sarah, due to its toxicity, authorities have banned the use of some pesticides in European crops. However, farmers still find ways to use them. Why and how is that possible? So
0: first of all, it's not just the farmers who does this. Industry accounts for almost half of emergency neonicotinoids registrations. So it's all about profit. Bayer and Syngenta alone make a turnover of almost 20 billion euros a year. And these are only two of the five largest agrochemical companies in the world, who gain a lot of money with pesticides. Farmers, on the other hand, use pesticides because they are often poorly advised. Farmers are not trained how to do real integrated pest management in an effective and regular base. Pesticides are promoted as faster and more efficient way. So, for example, emergency authorizations for neonicotinoids in Austria. Austrian farmers use the band neonicotinoids. Emergency authorization are used as a loophole to continue to allow highly dangerous pesticides. There are alternatives where to use not uh, neonicotinoids, even other less dangerous active substances, which could be used, but this would not be as efficient and take more time to use it. Therefore, it's easier to rely on emergency authorizations. So it's not just about knowledge, transparency, but also the law. It does not uh, support the
2: right thing. So the EU has a hard time in reaching its own sustainable development goals when it comes to food and agriculture in the EU. But it also has a responsibility for pesticide use worldwide. Silke, could you unpack what the impact of the EU's pesticide policies are on the global south?
1: European companies such as BASF, Bayer and Syngenta, they're still allowed to export banned pesticides to other countries outside of the EU. Ironically, one could actually say the effects are unacceptable for European citizens, but acceptable for citizens outside the EU. And especially in the global south, this is a problem because the environmental and safety regulations are often weak. Farmers are often unaware of the dangers of chemical pest controls and the personal protective equipment is often unavailable or too expensive or unsuitable for warm tropical regions. And farmers' plots are also very often smaller than two acres, so they're really, really tiny and they're very closely situated to each other, which makes it impossible to implement protective measures such as creating buffer zones to the next river system or buffer zones to the neighboring farm And many crops, for example, in Kenya, where I lived and worked for quite some time, are dependent on insect pollination. However, almost half of the pesticides used in Kenya are already banned in Europe, and partly because of their effects on pollinators. Additionally, monitoring programs are not in place. So governments can't measure and act upon the pesticide contamination in the environment and in the food. And there are lots of residues in food, For example, in tomato samples we have taken in Kenya, they contained up to 12 different pesticides in one single sample, and more than half of them are banned already in Europe. So this is worrying because Kenyans include tomatoes in almost all of their dishes. And UN experts say the total health care costs and other economic losses due to the use of these pesticides in sub-Saharan Africa exceeded the overall amount of official development assistance received by countries in the whole African region. So this is quite a lot. And civil society organizations from exporting, but also from the importing countries, highlighting the injustice of the double standard.
2: So what I'm hearing is that pesticides that are forbidden in Europe for ecological or health reasons are still produced in the EU and then exported to other countries. So let's pause here for a second and look at the figures. Sarah, is the production and export of pesticides in the EU increasing? To answer this question, I have
0: to admit that we have too few accurate figures when it comes to pesticide export. What we know is that in 2018 and 2019, a total of 140,000 tons of banned pesticides were exported from the EU. In Germany alone, it's around 10,000 tons per year. This fact does not come as a surprise because uh, two of the five largest pesticides companies are based in Germany. These pesticides are sent to different countries all over the world, for example, to Brazil. An example for exported substances is, for example, fertility damaging fungicide called Propinep from Bayer. Bayer is, by the way, also one of the biggest players in the African pesticide market. So, it's not just about they do money in Europe and in the north of the world. No, they try now to conquer the global south and also agriculture in the global south. Countries, they never depended on chemical pesticides. I'm very concerned about this fact that they say, okay, we cannot do a lot of business in. Our region because people know a lot and are aware how poisoned pesticides are. So, we have a new market there in Africa and in Asia and also in South America, and we export the pesticides there.
2: That's really horrifying to hear. But unfortunately, that seems to be the language of the world right now. So, despite those exports that you were talking about, have you found any differences between member states, Sarah?
0: Yes, there is. Um, I have to say that Germany continues to export Blesly pesticides, and France, for example, has had an export ban on banned pesticides since 2022. But despite this fact, French government has allowed to export 7,000 tons of banned pesticides since 2002. And why? Is that so? Because of the problem of loopholes. The French law only covers ready-mixed pesticides, not the individual active ingredients. This means that the individual active ingredients can be exported. Elsewhere, they are then mixed together into finished pesticides. So that is a really, really problem, and this is why we urgently need a eu wide export ban on banned pesticides. The Commission has already announced such a ban. It was planned within the framework of the Chemical Strategy 2023, but then dropped again due to the pressure from the industry.
2: So to end this part of the interview, I wanted to ask how the role of COVID-19 and the Russian invasion of Ukraine, how has that had an impact on the global food crisis? And what would you say are the lessons learned regarding the use of pesticides? Sarah?
0: Yes, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has shown clearly us how dependent our food system is on inputs like pesticides and mineral fertilizer. We import expensive, high energy intensive artificial mineral fertilizer and also pesticides to keep our monoculture system alive. Clearly, now we depend on few global market players who are also the monopolists for seeds, crops, and so on, and diminish our plate and the variety of our food. So this makes our food chain very vulnerable. There are alternatives, yet we rely on mineral fertilizer and pesticides because it is faster and more effective.
2: Silke, did you have anything to add to this?
0: Yeah, we heard that dependency on these fossil fuels
1: based inputs has made conventional farming more and more expensive for many around the world, also for farmers in Europe, but especially in the global south, if not even unaffordable. And in the past, low- and middle-income countries subsidized such inputs. So the states subsidized the costs of synthetic fertilizers and sometimes even pesticides. But because of high inflation and, and the massive price increase states can't ensure this anymore. So the subsidies are now too costly. The state can't afford to buy these inputs and the farmers don't have any inputs, but they made dependent on these inputs. So it's quite a vicious circle and that all contributes to the sharp rise in food prices and I think that's what the crisis has showed us. Many farmers around the world demand to end the dependency on these type of inputs and ask for locally adapted, ecological and socially fair agricultural techniques and they are more based on circular economy and on agroecological principles. But then on the other hand, and um, we heard that from Sarah already, the narrative of production increase still exists and is currently pushed more than ever. We can over the place. But despite the ever-increasing use of these inputs, hunger still exists and that's a fact. So, Pesticides do not seem to be the solution that the agriculture and chemical companies present them to be. And I think one lesson to be learned is that all these crises and not only the conflict and COVID, but also climate and costs are now overlaying and they're even accelerating each other. And we're probably going to stay in these crises for a long time. So we need to use this momentum to change the system, the whole system, and decrease the use of pesticides if not even to zero, is a really important first step in this transformation process.
2: Before we move on with the interview, let's recall some key concepts to understand clearly the consequences behind the current European legislation on pesticides. We mentioned that pesticides are fatal to health. Worldwide, 385 million people fall ill yearly from poisoning, causing about 20,000 deaths. This figure does not even count chronic diseases related to regular exposure to pesticides, such as Alzheimer's, infertility, cancer and diabetes. When it comes to the environment, pesticides pollute the soil and air and reduce biodiversity. Fields with agricultural practices that include pesticides have five times lower plant species richness and about 20 times lower pollinator species richness compared to organic fields. Although there is legislation banning its use in the European Union, the member states can allow pesticides through extraordinary mechanisms. Not to mention that European companies such as Bayer and BASF operate in the Global South, exporting substances that are prohibited in the EU. This practice is known as double standards. According to the Pesticide Atlas, the global pesticide market has almost doubled in the last 20 years. By 2023, the total value of all pesticides used is expected to reach nearly 130.7 billion U.S. dollars. As a question to both of you now, legislations such as the Farm to Fork Strategy and the Directive on the Sustainable Use of Pesticides have been in place to reduce pesticide use and risk by 50% by 2030. So far, do you think that the EU has failed to achieve this goal? Silke? Yeah, well, unfortunately,
1: the goal of a 50% decrease in pesticide use remains a long way, on my opinion. The European Commission has been so far unable to measure and reduce effects of pesticide use and risk simply because there are no available data. And the risk indicators are also unsuitable because they do not take into account how, where, and when the pesticide products are used. There are very few incentives for farmers to reduce their dependence on pesticides, or if we look the other way around, penalties for not doing so. Integrated pest management is one option to reduce pesticide use. And although applying the IPM principles is already a mandatory part of the sustainable use of pesticide directive or now regulation actions on the IPM, have been slow. And the support is definitely lacking there. The IPM practices should definitely be a condition for receiving payments from the EU's common agricultural policy. And last but not least is that civil society is not involved enough in the whole process, especially when it comes to set up the national action plans on member state level.
2: Sarah, anything to add to that?
0: I'm the rapporteur from the SURE, the Sustainable Use of Pesticides Regulation, and you asked if it failed to achieve this goal. Of course it failed. Otherwise, we would not have now the fact that the European Commission wants to do this directive transfer regulation in a directive. It's not immediately binding for the member states and therefore we are now working on a regulation on the sustainable use of pesticides. A regulation is legally binding and must be turned into national law in every member state. This would be the good thing. There is a data on the amounts of pesticides sold in the EU, but not On the application itself. So reduction is therefore difficult to measure. This is about to change. In autumn, we voted in the European Parliament on the so-called SAIO. This is a law that deals with agriculture statistics. This means starting in just 2028, the member states will have to provide much more precise data on actual pesticide use. This will also be important for the implementation on the war, of course. Uh, so there is some movement, but I can tell you that the lobbying from the agro industry is so powerful that they put a lot of pressure and fear in farmers. And in the end, they don't want to change anything. And this is a huge problem because we are a minority and even all the scientists are on our side with studies who shows that IPM management will get more money for the farmers than conventional farmers. I don't know if we will really be in the
2: position to change anything. Silke, what needs to happen to decrease the EU's negative spillovers on countries in the global south? With regard to pesticides, there needs to be an all-inclusive export ban to countries outside of the EU.
1: So not just products and not just those ones that are harmful to human health, but also active ingredients and also those ones who are environmentally toxic. So this is one thing, an inclusive export ban. And then trade agreements should never promote the export of harmful inputs, but should encourage actually alternatives. And the third one I would like to mention is, and I think this is also a very important one, is in development aid. There needs to be a big focus on creating alternatives in pest control, including the integrated pest management techniques, including organic farming, agroecological principles. And the focus should definitely be on soil fertility management and not on yield increase alone.
2: What about citizens' responsibilities, Sarah? What is your take on changing the European diet as a way to take responsibility for what is happening in the global South?
0: So, of course, everyone can do something by our own, by themselves. But the main point is that we need a legislative frame that supports the right, right? And punish the wrong, the wrong that destroys and makes really unfair problematics. So uh, to a certain extent, we can shape our food system by our own. For example, choose organic products instead of conventional ones, uh, organic regional agriculture and no chemical pesticides and so on. It is important that we consider the social aspect too healthy, fresh, and also organic food should actually be affordable for all EU citizens and not remain a luxury product. And in my opinion, it's not just about us. It's also about our neighbors in the South. We cannot stay with our feet on their shoulders and take all the debts for emissions, for waste, Uh, for poison pesticides because we want to eat too much meat. We want to waste too much food to put it in the bin and then say, no, it has to be go on and go on like this. It's difficult to influence pesticide practices in the global South as a consumer, but you can, for example, choose tropical fruits less often. And what we have to do, the first step, I think it's, to teach them how they can do their own uh, regional
2: agriculture and not import just wheat. I would like to bring to the table uh, practical alternatives on a farm level. So let's talk about best practices for agriculture. Could we make use of nature instead of synthetic chemical pesticides? Silke, what is your opinion?
1: Definitely, yes. And some examples are actually also shown in the Pesticide Atlas from the Heinrich Böll Foundation. So even though non-chemical controls like using biocides and plant extracts as alternatives to pesticides are very important in pest control management, and they also have a very long tradition, there should also be a focus on transforming the whole agricultural system, including improving biodiversity, improving soil fertility, and also water management. Because just uh, substituting one harmful tool with a less harmful one often does not work and can end up in production loss. So we should not forget the use of pesticides in agriculture is primarily forced by a lack of diversity. So increasing diversity, on the one hand, above the ground with mixed cropping, intercropping, mixing, for example, with plants that repel pest organisms, but also plants that attract beneficial insects, That's a very good way to control pests efficiently. And at the same time, increasing diversity below the ground, in the soil, with compost. So a system with crops that are well supplied with nutrients and water and live in a diverse system with lots of different other crops and plants is much more resilient to shocks and doesn't even necessarily need any biopesticides anymore at all. And Agroecology combines these farming practices, and most importantly, it also adds socioeconomic and human right points to the discussion. It emphasizes the importance of food sovereignty. Food sovereignty is really the right of people to healthy and culturally appropriate food that is produced ecologically sound, and their right to define their own food and their own agricultural systems. So this all entails in food sovereignty. And we need to take that into account when we talk about alternative systems and using less pesticides. And agroecology in the context of avoiding pesticides use has obvious benefits. For example, reducing the costs, the autonomy from corporations and companies, diversified income streams, risk management of crop failure, you name it. There's so many. And agroecology also has the potential to regenerate the ecosystem, which has been damaged and devastated by industrial farming.
2: So an agriculture system that respects biodiversity and that is less harmful for people is not just possible, but it sounds like there are a lot of good examples out there. So Sarah, what is the legislative framework that we would need to spur such a transition? And could you give us some concrete policies to start this change?
0: So the success of the new pesticide regulation, the SUA, is crucial it will oblige member states to reduce pesticides use in their country. The overall target is 50% reduction by 2030 and 50% reduction from highly hazardous pesticides. But I want to clearly spell out that just 50% of highly hazardous is not enough. This was set out by the Commission in the Farm to Fork Strategy. We also expect a strategy on soil health in the EU this year. More than 80% of soils in the EU are contaminated with pesticides and damaged. The soil strategy is therefore also a crucial piece of the puzzle. To sum up, we know that our agricultural system needs to change urgently. The expensive, highly toxic use of chemicals will lead to further degradation of soils and ecosystems, but also damage our health and the health of the farmers. We need a sustainable transition to preserve our resources for future generations. And all solutions are on the table. So let's do it. Let's go and let's fight for the better.
2: Yes, let's do it. Any final words from you, Silke?
1: I think the strategies also need to include incentives for farmers using alternatives to actually give them reasons, incentives of using integrated pest management, organic farming, or any of the alternative agricultural techniques, but then also look at the price of the pesticide itself. Um, For example, adding a, a levy on the very toxic pesticides. Denmark has done that successfully, for example, but then also looking at the external costs of the pesticide use the external costs on health, on biodiversity and on water quality and include that in the price and in the cost benefit assessments of the use of pesticides.
2: Thank you Sarah and Silke for that very insightful and very detailed look into the harmful impacts of pesticides and what we can do and there's so much that we can do. So on Sarah's final note of let's do it, there are options on the table. I'd like to end it and thank you very much for being with us on this episode.
0: Yes, thank you, Gail. And thank you, Silke, for your work. Thank you
2: so much. And that was it for the sixth episode of the Bull Europe podcast, the podcast of the European Union Office of the Heinrich Bull Stiftung in Brussels. Before we say goodbye, just a few more details about the pesticide atlas, which sheds light on this episode. The Pesticide Atlas 2022 is a comprehensive overview of facts and figures on global pesticide production and consumption, and its impact on people and the environment. You can read the whole report, which was published by Heinrich bull Stiftung, Friends of the Earth Europe and Pan-Europe, on eu.boell.org. And that's it for today. Until the next episode, goodbye.